Hello and welcome to the British Chambers podcast channel. We're delighted to bring you a second season of in-depth discussions and conversations with our members and high-profile speakers, ranging from topics like trade, fintech, arts, sports, and more within Singapore, ASEAN, and the UK. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello, and welcome to In Conversation with me, David Kelly. This series allows us to meet and talk to amazing business leaders and inspirational people from across various sectors. In this episode, we're merging the high-octane sport of Formula One with the event space. Um, My guest today is a brilliant entrepreneur who has set up a highly successful events business and contributed millions of dollars to help others and to support other charities. I'm really delighted to be welcomed by Sonia Irvine, founder and CEO of the Amber Lounge Group. Sonia, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to chat. Oh, it's great to have you with us. Sonia, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. But can I, can I take you back to the beginning? Because I believe you started your working life as a, a physiotherapist for the National Health Service and running your own private clinic. So it might seem like a bit of an obvious question, but that entrepreneurial spirit must be in you to build your own business. But, you know, how did you move from that to Formula One? Yes, I started life as a physiotherapist for the NHS, had a fantastic job. I fell upon physiotherapy and by chance. It was actually a friend wanted to do it. And I thought, hmm, that looks interesting. I think I'll try and do that. And um, actually, I got into the physio school and she didn't. So I was extremely lucky. But it was never enough. I, I specialised in elderly care during the day. And then I wanted to do my own clinic at night, doing sports injuries, treating sports athletes. So I had my own private clinic at night. And then whenever my brother ended up going to Ferrari, I got a phone call from him. I think I was backpacking at the time around Australia. And he said, oh, you'll never guess where I am. And I said, no idea. He says, I'm outside Ferrari. I'm about to go in and sign. And you want to be my physio? And I laughed and I goes, well, how much do you want to pay me? And uh, so anyway, we, we came to an agreement and uh, I came back early and I joined him as his physio at Ferrari. And then very quickly, he sold me off to the team so that they would pay for my flights and my accommodation. And so I became the team physio as well. So it was fantastic. So he basically brought me into Formula One as his physiotherapist. And then during those days, there was we were super busy. There was a lot of tests. You, you were away from home a lot. And I'd fly back early on, I'd fly back, you know, I'd maybe get home about two o'clock in the morning from a Grand Prix. And then I'd have my first private clinic patient in at, say, six o'clock in the morning before they went to work. So I still tried to keep everything going initially for the first year that I was doing Formula One. But then it just became too much. I was, you know, I was burning out. So I had to let go of my private practice and working in the NHS. And then I just focused on going around the world with him. Amazing. So I guess I guess the 90s were quite an interesting time in terms of sport, in terms of the amount of data available for individuals and the way you look after your body. And, and certainly, I mean, it's, you know, if you look at the drivers now, it's, it's, it's all about their well-being, isn't it? And, and how much you can get out of them to save weight and to, to keep them competitive and to get their core down. So it was, was it a really interesting time sort of, sort of doing that within the team? It was an interesting time in those days. It was, as I say, there was a lot more testing in those days. Right. So the drivers were probably less reliant on going to the gym. You know, the, the the neck strength was built up because they were doing endless hours of testing. Eddie was doing endless and endless hours of testing, which they don't have nowadays. So 
he was more a do it person as opposed to going to a gym. He always hated going into a gym. He just preferred, for example, to go out on his scrambler or go out on his jet ski and build up his core strength and by doing activities like that than going into a gym, a mundane gym. He just he just hated that. It just wasn't him at all. So as as with most things in life, he had his own way of approaching things. At the at the British Chamber of Commerce here in Singapore, we we've celebrated the Formula One program for many years with a VIP networking event. We've been honoured to be joined by drivers and team personnel to share their stories and experiences with us. And sadly, last year's race was cancelled from the 2019 calendar. We're fingers crossed that we're we're, we're able to support the, the event this year. But we first met the Amber Lounge and your team when your colleagues attended the event at the Singapore Cricket Club that we held, where our guest was Carlos Sainz, who was then driving for. Oh lounge. yes, yes, uh huh. Can you tell us a little bit more for our listeners about the Amber Lounge and how the brand came to be and sort of what the main drive behind the concept was? Amber Lounge started, as I say, my former, I've been a Formula One, I think, over nearly about 25 years now. And after working with my brother Ferrari, I decided it was time for a change. And I went and I did sponsorship across the different teams with different drivers, buying spaces that no one thought about. And then... From there, I went in and I worked as a consultant for a black tie event. And then the opportunity came along to run a private party that would be involving everyone in the paddock because there was nowhere where everyone went to all celebrate together. So, for example, in, in my day, you know, Marlborough would do their party, um, Williams would do their party, McLaren would do their party. But there was no one event where everyone came together and all the drivers mixed and everyone had fun and didn't have to worry about the media side of things. So that was the concept of setting up Amber Lounge that it would be for the Formula One clientele. The drivers wouldn't be left with the bill at the end of the night, which was often the case, as I say, whenever we would go out with the drivers. So it was a it was a concept that came up private, press weren't allowed in, and it was prepaid. So in other words, you could drink as much as you want and you didn't have to worry about the bill because you could just keep drinking and you could just keep having fun. And everyone loved it. I was super lucky in those days. You know, my first Amber Lounge, you know, Prince Albert arrived with Rod Stewart in there with the Edge, you know, Bono, um, Heidi Klum, Flavio, and you know, someone like Ron Dennis was extremely supportive of me because I was selling a product that didn't actually exist. You know, I had no market material, I had no photographs to show anyone to sell anything. So they were just believing in me and in my reputation. And then you know, Ron came up and he said, listen, I'd like to invite all my crew. You know, I need 60 tickets uh, for the Sunday night. And he basically brought his whole crew and he paid me for the tickets. And then at the end of it, he came up and he said, listen, that was amazing. An amazing party. Congratulations. Loved it. You have to you have to expand this and, and go elsewhere with it. And so I waited because my oldest daughter you know, she hadn't, she was only, I think she was only one or two whenever I set Amber Lounge up to start off with. And I was a single parent. So I waited till she was going to school and then I expanded it out to different areas in the world. We went to, I think it was China, I went to next. We went to Barcelona, we went to Valencia. And I, I came up with a concept where we would only run four events around the world. So I'd keep it exclusive. I'd keep it that people would want to come and experience Amber Lounge and not be tired of it. Yeah. And so we ended up with, you know, Monaco was always there. The mother, you know, that's the mother 
looks after everybody else. And then we've got Singapore. This year we'll have the Dutch Grand Prix, which is the first time we'll run something on the beach, hopefully COVID permitting. And then Abu Dhabi being the last race of the season as well. So that's oh. how it started. I mean, it's been a lot of hard work. I've got, you know, I've had a great team around me. Um, the brand's expanded. We've done other things. You know, we've gone into hospitality, race view and yachts, private jets to bring people in, accommodation. So we've expanded the brand as the years have gone on. Fabulous. And I guess sort of, I mean, you're obviously traveling in your physio days, but did you enjoy that aspect of the job around traveling all over the world and put on these events or, or, or can it be quite challenging? It can be challenging depending on where you're going. India was a challenge and they have a culture there of always saying yes, 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 when they actually mean no, no, no. And so when it came to the production element of it, I, you know, it was it was tough going. But we got there in the end because you have no choice. You have to get in the end there. You know, there's no dress rehearsal with Amber Lounge. You, you don't you don't you have a bad event one night and it you know, flows through to the other nights. So it's been challenging. I do love traveling. I probably don't see as many places of the world as I should have done because I arrive and I'm full in the Amber Lounge. And I try and stay away as little as I can from the from my kids so that I would, you know, fly as late as possible and return as late as possible. And if that meant, you know, I had to work 14, 15 hour days when I was there, then that's what I would do. So I wouldn't say that I went places and I relaxed and I maybe experienced them as much as I, I could have done. But that I made a choice and my kids would always win. Just operationally, is it quite a logistical nightmare getting stuff to the Grand Prix? Or do you look at sort of bringing things in from the local markets to help sort of build build the concepts? Is, is, is a lot of it sort of a bit of a turnkey solution or is there a lot of sort of tailoring for each of the different Grand Prix that you've got to sort of think about as an event organiser? Each event is very different because the venues are very, very different. But very early on, I decided to be in control of my own destiny. Because I can't turn up if I've sold a table and that consists of three sofas and a table and two cubes. I have to deliver that product. Yeah. And very early on, I learned that I was at the hand of others. So if someone came up and rented the furniture and paid them more money, they would give them the furniture. So in other words, I'm a very... I own a lot of furniture around the world. So we've we've furniture, we've got an amber lounge set up in Monaco, we have got it in Singapore, we have it in Abu Dhabi, and then the Dutch will be a beach event. So we will we'll have very little to do there. We might have one 40-foot trailer to take, but we won't have a lot to take there. So the right. key elements are there. And then I try and find a local production company that I will work with for a long time as long as we would do an Amber Lounge, you know, as long as they do their job properly, then I'll continue the relationship with them. And I think that's super important. You need to find the right local suppliers, the right local sound and light partner to work with. You know, if, if it goes out, if your sound, there's a problem with the generator at two o'clock in the morning, that person cares enough to, to rush out and, and make it make it all happen and put it all back together again. And that's not necessarily the biggest company that will do that because they might have bigger fish than me. So I will just choose a company that's passionate about Amber Lounge and passionate about working with the Amber Lounge staff as, as, as we are. Fabulous.
when you're running these events, I mean, do you tailor some of the events to the local market? So, I mean, Singapore would be very different to Monaco, perhaps, or very different to India or very different to China. Is, do you have to think about the drinks and the food and the atmosphere and the, and the style of the event and the running order? And are there, are there lots of sort of subtle differences between, between different countries that you travel to? Initially, whenever I took Amber Lounge to Shanghai, I tried to include a Shanghai element to it. But okay. then what you found is that they wanted the European element. They wanted Amber Lounge. They didn't want their own version of Amber Lounge. They wanted Amber Lounge. And so very early on, again, you learn that, you know, they want, if it's, if it's white sofas in Monaco, they want white sofas in Singapore. If it's white chill-out units, then it's white chill-outs um, in Singapore. So in all honesty, the, the setup will vary slightly in limited by the venue that we're in. For example, in Singapore, we build a purpose-built marquee. We have an outside terrace that allows for sponsors to do activations there and networking. And then inside, you have then your space that will look like the Amber Lounge inside Monaco, inside Abu Dhabi. And we would have a container that we would take key elements around the world so that we don't have to it reduces our carbon footprint as well. We, we try and not waste things. We try and not, you know, uh, for example, the frames, we try and keep the frames. The, the only thing that we're doing is putting the fabric on it again new each year. So it costs us a little bit more in terms of our man labour, but um, it's just better for the environment. So we just try and think about all aspects of that whenever we're doing our setup as well. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm really impressed as well that it's, it's the brand that people buy into rather than the yeah. cultural challenges. That's really, really good. That's, that's amazing. I believe one of your proudest creations is the Amber Lounge Charity Fashion Show, which I think you launched in 2006 under the patronage of His Serene Highness Prince Albert II of Monaco. That's absolutely amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the fabulous work that you do in that area? Because I think you've raised over $6 million for notable charities like Race Against Dementia Foundation, the Ace Foundation, the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. This is amazing. Can you just talk to us a bit more about your charitable activities as well? What I decided is the press were always wanting to come in the Amber Lounge and I wouldn't let them so they can take their photographs outside at the front entrance. Then I wanted to do something that would keep the press happy, but I also wanted to try and give back and came up with the idea of a fashion show. And initially it involved the ladies of Formula One, so the driver's wives and their girlfriends and the children of Formula One as well. So, you know, initially my my eldest daughter, Megan, did it. And, you know, Pedro de la Rosa and his children did it. So it was fantastic. And the press and media came. And then I thought it'd be a really good idea if the drivers came and they did it as well without thinking it might be a tad difficult because you've got to get all these drivers on the catwalk. You've got to, you know, they've all got different sponsors, maybe with regards to their designer wear, their their clothing. And at the same time, they'll have sponsor commitments that go on on a race weekend. But I've been extremely lucky in that the drivers give up a lot of their time for the fashion show in aid of the different charities. And as well as that, the teams have been very supportive as well because they allow the drivers and they try and fit it in amongst the different driver um, commitments that they have. And so we've we've come up with an event and it's not really my event. It's a Formula One event because, as I say, everyone contributes to it in the, the way that they, they facilitate it and allow it to happen. So we've supported different charities over the years. Normally the charities 
we'll keep them for two or three years. And then after that time, you, you need to really change so that you give people something new to have an interest in and new to have to bid on. And we've been lucky. Yep, we've we've raised over six million for different charities across the time. And again, lucky enough that, you know, His Serene Highness has supported Amber Fashion and he's attended. And that makes a massive difference because whenever he's there, it tends to be people are more generous as well. And for example, this year, you know, we're trying very hard. We've got our floor plan signed off. We should be able to, to run the fashion show. And, you know, we've got Gulf Oil as a sponsor. We've got Orby Hair as a sponsor. We've had different auction items for the live auction and for the charity auction donated to us already. So we're well down the road of running the fashion show Touchwood for Monaco 2021. Oh, fabulous. I can't wait to see uh, how that develops as well. I think that's 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 really amazing. Using the platform for, for good, I think, is, is is fabulous. It would be a bit remiss of me, Sonia, to, to sort of not mention the, uh, the global pandemic, I guess, because, you know, running any events business must have been super challenging last year. Um, I know that we're still not seeing um, many fans in the stands, even though there was a, a good calendar put on last year. But can you just tell us a little bit about how the global pandemic affected your business as, a, as, as running an event that sort of travels around the world? This time last year, I went to Australia as I normally would go to that race to get the drivers organised, measure them up for the fashion show for the Monaco Grand Prix, meet, you know, new people, new drivers. So I went this time last year, got on a plane. I think I arrived Thursday morning at two o'clock in the morning, went into the paddock that afternoon. Someone was found with COVID that night. And I called my PN, I goes, get a flight, get me out of here. I can't be stuck here. And on the plane on the way back on the Friday uh, with, you know, met Esteban and Carlos Sainz, I think, in the airport as well. And, you know, sat on the plane and I wrote a survival strategy because I believed that's what it was going to be. And I believed that you needed to, to react quickly to it. So there I decided, you know, I, I would have a team of 15 people and, I couldn't I couldn't maintain that. You know, I, I could foresee a year where we were we were lucky if we we're going to run any events. And and that was the yeah. truth of it. We really didn't run any events. We run a few private events, but nothing, nothing that was like an amber lounge. And I I had to say to the team, and I kept six people who could multitask. So you know, the, the PR person had to do the social media side of things, has to do the marketing side of things, has to do the PR. We've got sales who can go across the hospitality element of it as well as the sales element of it. Production who can go across hospitality as well as the Amber Lounge production. And we just became a tighter team and worked on the future. And it also gave us time to think about how we could improve the brand and where we were where were we going with things? And it became quite obvious that people knew us for the Amber Lounge party, but not necessarily for the other products that we did. So that's why we rebranded and became the Amber Group as opposed to Amber Lounge. So Amber Lounge is the party element of it, but the Amber Group in within that, you have Amber Lifestyle that does weddings, uh, that does private birthday parties, um, you know, that does photo shoots with with different celebrities. Then you have the tour with legends that we brought on board, which is a private car tour that will run before the Monaco Grand Prix. So we brought on different elements and it gave us time to actually, as I say, rebrand and rethink how we could promote in a better way all of the other products that we do outside Formula One. So we, tr- we tried to use that time efficiently in that way. 
bit of a silly question, but we run some sort of quite big physical events here in Singapore for the for the British Business Network. We tried to sort of put a lot of hours into an online platform. Did did that work for you at all? Did you look at sort of an online version of some of the parts within your Amber Group brands? I was asked to look at online. Um, and I, <laughs> those emails are still in my inbox because I haven't dealt with them. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. And, a, and a, a virtual fashion show. But maybe I'm just old school. I can't get my head around it. And I know it's the way, you know, things are going. But for me, I'm a very touchy-feely person. You know, I want to meet people. I want people to meet and network and and build relationships with people. And I don't think you can beat face-to-face. I know, as I say, you know, we did the Gulf Oil Partnership and we did the Orbi over Zoom and things like that. But to actually run a, a party and to run a, a, a yacht, yeah, I think you have to be there. You have to be there. So they're, as I say, they're in my inbox, but I, I haven't, I haven't dealt with them. Oh, I love your honesty. That's that's absolutely brilliant, and sticking true to the brand as well, right? I mean, it's about that. It's about that experience. I think absolutely yes. is, is brilliant. So, I mean, what what do you think the challenges that face events businesses are in the future? I mean, have you got sort of a couple of top three tips of how to operate an events business like 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 yours? Uh, that's a good question. It's. It's really, I think the best thing that you have to have is just resilience. Yeah. We must be on version 18, I think, of our fashion show floor plan with different elements to, as the COVID laws have changed. So we've had to change it again, change you know, how we work with suppliers, what the suppliers can do, what they can't do. And even our brochure, our brochure, you know, I was talking to a client who's wanting to come from the States and I said to him, well, this brochure that you're going to receive isn't the normal Amber Lounge products. And they said, you know, should we do this year or should we do next? And I always have to be honest. And I said, you know, this year will be will be different. I think it will be more exclusive. Um, you know, our, our race for your yachts will probably only be at 50% as opposed to, you know, the full yachts. Amber Lounge concept, you know, we'll run the fashion show earlier so we can go into dining earlier. You have a dining element and you'll have a drinks package element, but we won't have the after party. So you'll have a different experience. There'll be less people. But if it's the Monaco that you normally want, you're not going to get it this year. And then I said to him, you know, our brochure, again, has changed probably eight, 10, 12 times. And, you know, whenever you change a brochure, you're changing all your sales material, you're changing your website, everything changes. So you have to have perseverance. The easiest thing would be to say, do you know what? What's the point of your Monaco 2021? What is the point? But I just, I'm just a fighter. And I just think we should try and deliver something to the clients. And, you know, even the tour with Legends that we're doing, you know, we've got five cars with another three people hoping to be able to travel in, you know, they've had their first vaccine. So we'll run the tour with legends with a smaller element of cars, but you still want to try and run something for the clients. You know, it's not going to be generating any profits because you can't when you're running at 50%, but it keeps the brand alive. It keeps the clients, you know, interested in the brand and it just delivers something because if you don't wake up and believe that you can do something where well, you might as well stay in bed. 
So I think the best thing, you know, my top tip would be you have to have determination and the will to make something want to work. Dedicated, hardworking, and as always, attention to detail. It's it's everything's in the detail and being as pre-planned as you can. Amazing. Hannah, how do you balance all of this while having a family as well? Well, my eldest, she's at uh, London School of Economics studying law, so she's sort of gone for now. And my youngest, as I say, she's got the ADHD, which is challenging, but you know she'll do amazing things in life. It, uh, we'll just have to get there in a different way, as I did with my oldest. I think you just, there's not much time for me. So you tend to put work and kids, they, they just come first. They just have to, and you just you just make it all work. You just, there's no choice. You just have to make it all work. Just got to do it. I guess. Guess a couple of personal questions. What was your What was your favourite Amber Lounge, and why? Probably the the favourite one was the very first one that I did, because to bring something to life that didn't exist, and you didn't know if it was going to work, and the fact that everyone in the paddock supported me. You know, as I say, from the team principals down to the drivers, you know, Michael was there, Jacques was there, Mika Hacken and DC, you know, Damon, all these iconic drivers that I went through my early Formula One days. They were all there having fun. And the fact that you'd created this environment that everyone came and actually they weren't paid to be there. They came because they they were having fun and they wanted to be there. and. That has to be my that has to be one that sticks in my head. That's hard to beat. And you had all the celebrities and jumping on the sofas and you know I'd achieved what I wanted to achieve, really. Favorite driver? Driver? Probably a bad question because it it should be Eddie, shouldn't it? Surely. (laughs) Well, he's not a driver, he's an ex-driver. Do you know what? They're all I as I say, they're all amazing with me. And they've all got their own little ways and they've all got their own little places where they like to be in Amber Lounge and it's known all of that which driver likes to sit with which driver and uh you know which driver likes to be in the corner where no one bothers them and uh, it's it's just it's good to be able to work with them all really it's funny that Michael was an amazing support to me and you know we went back years in Ferrari and whenever I started Amber Lounge I couldn't afford to pay him any marketing rights to use his image in Amber Lounge and uh, he says, yeah, yeah, no, no problem, Sonia. And, you know, he gave me a quote and he was there and he loved Amber Lounge. And it's funny, his son, I had a text saying, oh, um, would it be possible to come to Amber Lounge? You know, my dad spoke about it so much. And um, so he came into Amber Lounge in Abu Dhabi and he had, you know, a fantastic time. And it's funny how the younger generation are the drivers that I worked with early on, it's now their children that are coming into Amber Lounge and having a fantastic time. And it's the same with Jean Lacey's kids and stuff like that. So it's good. Amazing. Of course, Mick Schumacher's driving this year, isn't he? I think. Yeah. Very nice club. You've had an amazing, amazing career. I've just, I'm just so inspired on about your attitude and just the way you approach things is absolutely amazing. Have you got a funniest moment from everything? Have you gone, oh no, this is all this is all falling apart, it's all collapsing, and it all comes together and you you, you can sort of sit back with a glass of champagne? And- Probably the funniest and the worst thing that happened to me is to, I think it was 2019, where I was rushing to meet Prince Albert. And I'd 
I, I put on a dress. I put on the dress for the fashion show because I'm part of the fashion show. And the dress was too long because I hadn't had time to, the usual thing, I hadn't had time to go and try on a dress. I basically pulled the last one that there was on the rack and put it on. It was a little bit too long for me. And uh, I had to go into high heel shoes earlier than I wanted to. So one minute Prince Albert was coming by tender. So I rushed down to the tender. Then the next thing I got a call, no, he's coming by road. So I rushed to the road to, to the entrance of Amberlounge. And no, he wasn't coming in that entrance. Then he was going to come in the hotel entrance. And so I then had to rush to the hotel. And in the process of rushing, I tripped on my dress and fell down probably oof, eight, eight steps, 10 steps. And I could hear the crack. And I got up and my foot was killing me. And I, I looked at the security and I said to the security, make sure you put white tape on that. It hasn't been taped properly um, before guests arrive. Um, put stronger lights on that. And then I went to the front desk and I said, can you give me four painkillers, please? And I put four painkillers in and then I rushed along to meet Prince Albert. And my foot was killing me. And anyway, and I was smiling to get out of the car and we're walking towards the car. And he goes, so how are you, son? And I goes, well, actually, I've fallen down the stairs. I said, and I think I've broken my foot. And he went, oh, my goodness. So he gave me his arm to hold on to his arm. And I goes, no, no, it's OK. It's OK. Because we were then walking towards the press and media. And the last thing that I wanted was for, you know, us to be going down there arm in arm, him holding my, me as I walked along. So anyway, we did the show. Um, I got on, did the catwalk, I got people to dine in, I got everything organised, the party was running smoothly and then at two o'clock I went to the security and I pulled up my dress, my foot was black and so swollen I couldn't get my shoe off. So I said to the security, can you get me a car and take me up to the hospital because I've broken my foot. And when I went to the hospital, the doctor looked at it and he goes, oh my God, he said, what time did you do this? I said it was seven, 12 minutes past seven at night. And uh, he goes, it's two o'clock in the morning. What have you been doing? I said, oh, I've been working. I had work to do. And he looked and he goes, your boss let you work with a foot like that? And I goes, I am the boss. <laughs> so he just, he just laughed and uh, they put me in a cast. And he said, right, you have to elevate your foot. And I looked at him and he goes, you're not going to elevate your foot, are you? I said, I can't. I said, give me to Monday and then I'll elevate it on Monday. And so I was on crutches for the full weekend, but it was it was tough going. But you just had to get on with it. I'd broken my foot in five places. Oh, gosh. I don't know how you managed to do that. I'm sure you don't really managed to do that. Were you ever worried about Eddie having a, a bad accident in Formula One. I mean, he was in the era, wasn't he, with Senna having his accidents. And if you were travelling all over the world as his physio, I mean, just the emotional turmoil must have been absolutely enormous in terms of there being friends in the paddock, but also it's your brother racing. Right? I mean, must be, must, must, be, must have taken its toll on you sort of mentally. That's a very good point. Early on, whenever, because whenever Eddie was at Jordan, I wasn't his physio. And my mum and dad travelled the world a little bit with him and then they were super happy whenever he went to Ferrari and then he needed a physio because they knew that I would always look out for him and I, I would always be there and I'd always sort out any issues so there was there was a, a general unwritten family what's the word we just we just knew that I'd sort things out <laughs> 
and that I would be there. And I remember he had a really bad accident. And I think it was in Spa where he, he the car and Edmund, he's a very, very, very careful driver. So he didn't really have that many accidents. A lot of drivers were very aggressive and accident prone. He really wasn't like that. But there was a one accident happened and he went over the top of a car and it rolled. And um, I was in the garage at the time and I just thought, oh, my God. And uh, you just your heart, you know, just stopped and it went into your throat and you just and then. I said to myself, you're not here as a sister, you're here as a physio and you're here to make this right. And so I went out. Oh, goodness. And the next thing you see him running up the pits and you just thought, oh, good, he's OK, he's OK, he's OK. And um, so he came in and I goes, are you OK? He said, I've hurt my knee. So um got him a seat, got him an ice pack. I always everything in the back of the garage. So should he need anything, seat, ice pack. Gave him, you know, an anti-inflammatory pad that I had. Strapped his knee. And, you know, we put him in the reserve car. And you just, you just had to, you couldn't get emotional because that wasn't your job. Your job wasn't to be there and cry. Your job was to, you know, make him be able to get out on the on the track again and make you know and finish the race. That that was my job, and um, and I think that's how I approach things. That you know, I was there as a sister, but I was there as his as his physio. Oh, wow! How do you decompress from from all of those emotions? Because it is, it, I mean, it's high octane on the on the racetrack, right? But it's also high octane in terms of your emotions and what's going on. Just, just around the spot. How, how, how do you decompress? How do you, how do you chill out? When, how do you get your you time? I think in those days I didn't, because as well as being his physio, I was managing his businesses in Ireland, his property stuff, his he had taxi companies, he had, he had stuff everywhere, and I was managing all of those things. And then I tended to look after his PR calendar you know if someone wanted things you know I was in the logistics of the plane and getting them you know for example drivers are very they're very unique people in how they think um and I don't know if I know how he was when it, when a race had ended and he had done his deeper he, he needed to get out his release was getting out of away from the circuit as quickly as he could so that involved me having, you know, we'd have to have a helicopter ready, we'd have to have his jet ready, go by car, go by scooter. So I'd have, you know, maybe three or four plans of how he was going to get out of the circuit, depending on what mood he was in, because it was better to have done all of that work beforehand. So everything was there ready, depending on what he wanted to do. And it was less stressful for everyone. And then once he was on the plane, then I could come back pack all my things up and unwind that way. I probably didn't decompress enough uh, because I was doing all of the other things. So whenever he was maybe unwinding on Anaconda, I was going back and doing all the other work stuff that allowed him to facilitate. So the only thing he had to focus on was his racing. But again, that was my job. 
And so in the in the years that I worked with, in the four years that I worked with them on the track in Ferrari, I probably crammed in eight years of work and I learned so much. So that was my that was my way of looking at it, that I was learning so much in such a short space of time, as opposed to thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And, you know, it's not fair. I, I never thought that way. This was this was my job. It was an amazing opportunity. And he'd given me an amazing opportunity. And I was learning all the time. And I was always very hungry for new, how to, how to do new things. I was always like, even in physio, you know, whenever I went to a new job where we went into orthopedics, I had already, you know, organized two orthopedic courses on the weekend so that I could be the best that I could be at orthopedics. And then I knew my next rotation was going to be in intensive care. So I'd go and train and I'd do extra courses on, you know, how to do suction or how to do place people best in order to, to bring up um, excretions and things like that. So I'd always push myself that way and probably didn't decompress. And when it came to him moving on to Jaguar, I just knew that I couldn't go. I just knew that I, I for my own self-preservation, I couldn't go. I had to do something different. Otherwise, uh, I, I don't know. I, do, I think the stress would have got to me at the end because at the end, I was probably working 18-hour days and not sleeping very much. Your, your career has just been absolutely amazing and just how you've moved into those different areas is just, just I think really, truly, truly inspiring. If we could give you the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's time machine, and we, you can transport yourself to a point in your career where you know everything that you know now, but you could go back to a younger version of yourself and give yourself some advice. When would you go back and tell yourself something and what would that something be? Oh, goodness. Uh, there's nothing I'd change. Okay. Because even through the bad things, you, you have to come out learning something and it makes you a different person. So, you know, would I, if I went back and said, would I go to India again? No, that was the most difficult Grand Prix that I ever worked at. But I learned so much. And you can't change anything. So you always learn from your mistakes. And if you don't learn from your mistakes, then you're not open to things and you have to be open to everything. I really like that. I really like that. Sonia, thank you so, so much. It's been a real privilege to have you with us today on the channel. Thank you. I'm just very, very inspiring. And we hope to see you in Singapore later this year. We're just, yes. just <laughs> hoping we can see you then. Take care and thank you very much for asking me. Nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and rate our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google and all other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit www.britcham.org.sg.